that it was great that the Wheelock board put the mission first. Yes, because exactly. I've seen so many institutions change their mission to chase the dollar or the enrollment, exactly. right? And um, you know, not everyone was thrilled with the BU merger and felt that we should have uh, kept the institution open no matter what. Mm. And I have said, we, I think we really need, we are nonprofits. We really need to walk that back and say, why are we here? And when you right. change too much, are you, are you changing to chase the dollar? Or are you changing because you want to stay true to your mission and you can find right. another way to meet that mission? And and I think that it is when you're when you're founder focused on training kindergarten teachers, I mean, that is really it's that's an important mission to protect. And um, but it's hard to pay the bills when that's your focus. Hello. Welcome to season two of Ingenious You, the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading edge thinking. Your host is Melissa Morris Olson. The challenges facing colleges and universities short term and in the years to come are immense. And yet many institutions are adapting in surprising and inspiring ways. In each episode of Ingenious U, we will talk with higher education thought leaders about the academic transformation that is underway. Our guests will include college and university leaders, faculty, innovators, futurists, and others who are thinking about and experimenting with new approaches. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious U wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share with your colleagues and friends so they can join the conversation too. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Ingenious You, where we consider the most urgent and provocative topics that are reshaping higher education and we get to speak with higher ed's most creative and visionary leaders. I am joined for this episode by the highly accomplished and passionate higher education advocate, Dr. Mary Churchill. Mary has worn many hats over the course of her career, including faculty member, academic administrator, executive coach, among many other things. She's the founding editor of University of Venus and writes and presents often on the future of education. She is the co-author of the recently released book by Johns Hopkins Press, When Colleges Close, Leading in a Time of Crisis, which details the merger of Wheelock College and Boston University, something that she knows quite a bit about, as we will learn shortly. So we will include a link to her bio in the show notes for our listeners. But for now, Mary, welcome to the Ingenious You community. Thank you so much, Melissa, and I am really excited to be here and to have this conversation with you. Thanks again for inviting me. You're welcome, and I have really been looking forward to this. You have such an interesting background, and I'm excited to dive in and have our listeners learn more about all of the things that you're doing. So, And we do like to start our interviews by asking our guests to tell us something about their professional journey. Now, according to your bio, you are a first-gen you were the first in your family to attend college. You then went on to hold a number of impressive roles within higher education, including as vice president for academic affairs at Wheelock, uh, where you 
co-led uh, Wheelock successful merger with BU. So here's the question. Tell us how it is that a girl who is originally from the pets for meat world portrayed in Michael Moore's Flint, Michigan, grows up to be a successful higher ed leader, speaker, writer, consultant, and so much more. And while you're at it, be sure you tell us all about your latest gig that I just learned. <laughs> so. It's such a great question, you know, and when I saw this question and thinking about my time with you today, I, it's, you know, I feel really grateful for the mentors I've had along the way. And I think they even started with my kindergarten teacher, right? Um, I think that so many people saw potential in me and supported me from earliest times and really throughout grade school, high school, college, and, and later in my career. And so that network is really what helped me get where I am today. Um, and so, yes, I'm first gen. My father was a high school dropout who joined the military. Um, and when he came back, he did a GED, and then he worked the night shift for General Motors on the assembly line and often worked six days a week so he could work weekends to make extra money. And I experienced um, food and housing insecurity as a child. I always like to say when you grow up poor, you're, you're with other poor people and you don't actually know you're poor until you become an adult and look back and think, wow, that was, that was some, those were some pretty tough times. So my first home was a trailer park in Flint, Michigan. And um, then I went to Michigan State and first gen and got my degree in psychology. And this the day after I took my last final, I packed up my stuff and moved to Boston. And so that was 1989 and really made Boston my home. I love Boston. Did a master's and PhD in sociology at Northeastern University, focused on race, class, and gender, and taught, like you mentioned, but then got pulled into administration right away. Um, I got my PhD in 2004 and uh, was pregnant a month later. So, and then so I had a baby <laughs> in 2005. And found that administration offered a, a more flexible a route for me as a young as a mother of a young child and also um the, the income was such a, a dramatic difference and the ability to afford childcare in the city of boston was just not it was not affordable as a faculty member and it was and as, as an administrator and so that really put me on an administrative track and um moved through the ranks at different institutions, Salem State, Wheelock, now BU. Um, and at the same time, I uh, moved to Roxbury within Boston in 94 and started doing um, quite a bit of community work, volunteering at my son's school, sitting on a local boards, helping people organize um, neighborhood development work. And so became very invested in the community. And so right now, as you mentioned, my current position is um, I am on leave from Boston University and I am the chief of policy and planning for the city of Boston for Mayor Kim Janey, who is the first woman mayor of Boston and the first person of color after hundreds of years of white men in power so it is a really amazing historic time and um 
it is a time of growth for me. I'm learning so much. I'm learning um, a whole different sector, but also a lot of different content areas too. So really bringing my life's work together in an amazing um, and powerful way. And, and I just feel very lucky, so. And what a, a wonderful opportunity you now have to be part of this game-changing administration uh, with somebody who you obviously have great admiration for. Um, yes, and in such a crazy time, right? A global pandemic, financial crisis, racial and social reckoning, mm -hmm. right? It really, um, when she asked me to join her in January, uh, you know, we, our cases were almost at an all time high. And so it's been such a challenging year and a half. And so to be asked to serve at a time like this in such a historic moment was, um, I guess, you know, is, is an indication of my personality in another way of how I ended up here, right? I saw this as an opportunity to give back, to have an impact, to make a difference. And I have never shied away from these types of opportunities that have come my way. And so while my colleagues in higher head said, are you crazy? Well, you know, I, I would never do that. You're so brave. I didn't see it that way. I saw it as a, a really amazing opportunity to make an impact in a historic time and to, and to give back. And it wasn't until I got into City Hall and I was like, I have no idea. Well, any like you know, it's a whole different vocabulary, and it's been an amazing experience to take everything I've learned in higher ed for the last thirty plus years and see how that crosswalks into a, a municipal setting like this. So it it has really been um, phenomenal. But again, I I take these strange turns when they present themselves to me. So. Well, and it it strikes me that your life reflects as well a deep and an enduring uh, commitment to women in leadership. And so in some ways, stepping up and saying yes to this new historic mayor uh, reflects, I would imagine, a commitment to wanting to support her in being successful. Um, but you've also, uh, you've been an executive coach, you are an executive coach, you told me right before we started that you only coach women. Um, and so it, it, it seems like that's a, a broader, but also very important part of your, your story, right? Definitely, definitely. You know, really, um, I would say, when I did my work in sociology, uh, focusing on race, class and gender, it was really this commitment to um, support women, particularly women of color, and partner with them and their leadership goals really started to crystallize and kind of finding a way for me to do that type of work. And I've been on a, a board that you probably know about here in the state of Massachusetts, um, the ACE Women's Network, mm -hmm. their state network. I've been on that board since 2014, um, Eve Solomon Fernandez, a mutual yes. acquaintance of ours and friend, uh, and first nominated me to that board. And it has really given me the opportunity to serve and support women um, leaders of, in higher ed in the state and in the, in the country. And it's really the coaching has given me a set of tools to also support women, particularly women of color and leadership roles, not just in higher ed, but also in the private sector and in, in local government, as you pointed out. So yes, definitely. Um, but I would say it's a mission that's born over my lifetime, 
not necessarily one I could have articulated, maybe not even 20 years ago. So, Well, congratulations on your recent book, uh, which uh, I have read, uh, and I think it's a wonderful and a very valuable book. Uh, just came out in early April, so it really is truly hot off the press. Um, when colleges close, uh, we, we read about the story of the decision-making process leading up to the 2018 merger, and it is a fascinating read. What is particularly interesting to me, and I think will be to others, is the fact that as you write it, Wheelock was not necessarily in a state of crisis when you made the decision to pursue a merger. So given that context, can you describe the decision-making process that you went through and why you eventually concluded that Wheelock's status as a standalone institution was not viable? And then what led you to seek a partner? So much to unpack there. First, thank you so much for your kind words about the book and, and for uh, reading it and enjoying it. Uh, we really wanted to, my, my co-author, David Shard, and I, who was president at Wheelock at the time um, when I was the vice president for academic affairs, we wanted to write this book in a way that told a story and that was engaging um, and that had lessons for leaders, but also would uh, honor and honor the legacy of the founder, Lucy Wheelock, and all that had made Wheelock such an amazing institution. So we were very careful in um, respecting, I think, a lot of people's uh, emotional um, orientations towards this uh, merger, which was a really traumatic event for many people. And so, it was uh, an incredibly rewarding book to write, but emotionally very challenging to write. And so there were times where we just could, we had to put it down and walk away from it. Not because it was hard to write, you know, technically hard, but it was emotionally difficult to write. So, um, and I, I, I'm glad that comes through in the book. Um, you know, we in New England were seeing other institutions close and and, and not close in such a, a pretty way, right? You know, close in a way where um, they struggled to make the final payroll for their employees. They had not put plans in place for their students. Um, so uh, I had seen the closing of Marion Court when I was at Salem State and the closing um, of Mount Ida was happening at the same time we were uh, pursuing a, a the merger um, partner, and so we had seen it what the effects were and what had happened when you didn't plan for a closure, um, and we were aware we were coming up on a year a fiscal year where we were not going to be able to successfully close the books, and we ended up close, uh, selling the president's house and other property on campus to come in um, closing the books in the black. But I think as we say in the book, you only have one president's house to sell. You can only do that once. And so we were uh, financially strong because we sold the property, but we couldn't continue to sell the property. Um, so we realized that our enterprise value was the strongest it was going to be at that moment. And that we needed to, if we were going to pursue a partner, and negotiate hard and ask for as much as we could for our students and our employees and the future of the mission of Wheelock, 
we had to strike while the iron was hot. So we, we pursued a very aggressive timeline over a summer to um, request proposals from institutions. We received six really robust proposals. We narrowed that down to uh, two institutions and then negotiated really hard with those two institutions. And BU had been a strong uh, partner, potential partner from the beginning and ended up being truly the best match for Wheelock. And we were able to support our mission, support our students in a really fully financially, you know, as they, they merged into Boston University as Boston University students um, for the teach out. Many of our staff moved over into Boston University. All of our tenured faculty were offered full-time permanent positions at Boston University. And those who were not retained by Boston University were given um, pretty generous severance packages. If you had been there 10 years or longer, I believe, they were given nine months severance packages. So these are all things that we negotiated for. And, uh, and BU, as a, as a strong financial institution, was able to provide and really take a, a lot of the um, endowment from Wheelock and get in give it to Wheelock College at BU to reinvest in the building of that new college. And the other proposals from the other institutions either uh, were not that generous or um, were not able to because they were not as financially strong as Boston University was. So, Well, and I want to come back and, and ask you a few more questions about um, how one knows that a partnership is is viable um, on on the front end when you're trying to negotiate that. But before I do, um, when did you uh, when did you go to Wheelock? What was the year? So it was the same year as the merger, okay, being 2017. So, so I, you know, and the academic years are so the process is so long, right? So I think the job was posted in November of 2016. I started looking at it in December, and then. I put, you know, talked to uh, the search firm in January. I think right. I applied in February, had the airport in March, you know, so, so this is yeah, all unfolding right. at the same yep. time um, that the institution at Wheelock is realizing, okay, our finances, if we do our long-term forecasting for three, five, seven years, this, this is not looking pretty given the demographic cliff for the traditional undergrad um, student population in New England. And so the president, David Chard, was in constant contact with me, giving me updates on the direction that the institution was going in. But my official first day at Wheelock was July 1, 2017. And by that point, the Strategic Options Committee that decided on um, uh, the direction for Wheelock's future had already started meeting and had already basically eliminated the standalone option for Wheelock and the future. And so I did attend those meetings before July 1st because we, we were going quickly. So. so you took the job knowing that the merger was a, was a strong likelihood or was a possibility? You know, not really, yeah. because I think that um, I, I think I accepted in April, right, and left Salem State in early May. And at that point, it wasn't until May 31st that the um, standalone option was eliminated 
as a um, as an option. And it was okay. always kept on the side in case sure. a viable partnership did not come through. So sure. And we really didn't know if a partnership would last. We didn't know what that partnership would look like. We didn't know right. it would be the closure of Wheelock, sure. right? And some of the proposals did not um, uh, end in a, the closure of Wheelock right. as a standalone, right? So there are lots of different types of partnerships. And I think we thought at that point it might be a four-year process of like okay. we would teach out at Wheelock and stop admitting students and there but with BU it was a very quick timeline you know we signed the MOU in October and we closed on May 31st right like it was very fast and so um I, I don't think again we couldn't have predicted it a year earlier well and I think that the reason I'm asking the question um is it speaks to your uh comfort with venturing into into the unknown <laughs> because obviously you knew you you probably had some sense that this was not going to be business as usual whatever whatever you were stepping into right yes good point melissa yeah. I, I and i was um just like with the city hall opportunity i was i was able to pivot and see it as an opportunity to learn about what unfortunately is probably the future of higher ed mergers and closures and this consolidation process. Um, I think I would not have applied in January if I thought it was going to merge uh, with BU, right? But once I was in it and committed, I did, I'm very much a lemons lemonade kind of gal. And I was like, well, this is something I've never done before. And <laughs> this is a whole new opportunity of growth and learning. Um, and, and I wrote that right. And really, and I think at that point, I also, I spoke to my editor at Inside Higher Ed. Uh, he was there for the NIASC um, annual conference, now NECI. And uh, he said, I hope you're writing, taking notes on this because this is really <laughs> phenomenal. And I said, yeah, well, I am, I'm journaling because you know this is a crazy process to go through. And I think as a form of self-care, I was journaling. Um, and he said, well, this is a book, Mary. And I think at that point I, I talked to David. And so that was December, 2017 and I said, my editor at Inside Higher Ed thinks this is a book. What do you think? And at that point, I was planning to do it by myself. And he said, yeah. And I and then I looked at him because I could, there was this expectation. I said, do you want to do that together? And he said, I would love to do it together. So and, and then we um, talked to Greg Britton at Hopkins about seeing if they would be interested in publishing this book. So and the rest is history. And the rest so, is history. Yeah. Well, and I think I think your um, your comments speak to something that uh, is is a really valuable lesson for anyone working today in higher ed. Um, to your point, because changes changes the new the new norm, and uh, so looking at change, whether you are the person initiating it or you are in the midst of it and it's happening to you, looking mm -hmm. at it as uh, a learning opportunity, and you know what what can I learn from this, even if it's uncomfortable and you know, you don't know where it's going to end up. So I think that's a really valuable lesson for all of us. Yeah, and I would add, and I think this comes through in our book too, and what type of leadership does this situation demand, right? You know, and 
it definitely, I am, I have always been a problem solver, right? Or a builder or an innovator. And when you're closing a school, you're not doing that. You know, I had to really grow that muscle of holding space for what, you know, what we call in the book, people's, the we like way, which is people's big feelings. Mm -hmm. And so just sitting at my round table in my office and people raging, people crying, people wanting to tell me the story of how amazing and unique Wheelock was. And um, I couldn't fix that, right? There was, it was, uh, and so that is kind of what led me to getting trained as a coach is because there are, it was a real learning lesson for me of this isn't a problem to be solved. Like your role here is to, is to listen and, um, see people, hear people, uh, wit bear witness to what they're going through, but to just hold that space for them, so. Mm. Well, mm. Very wise. Um, now for institutions that are on the front end of exploring whether a merger or a strategic partnership might be in their future, what are the most essential questions that they should be asking or issues that they need to keep in mind in deciding whether this might be a viable option? It's a great question. I think that some of the, the best work we did or the what seemed to be most strategic and meaningful for me at least was getting the board um, to prioritize what it wanted out of a merger partner, right? And so, and there are lots of types of things. Is it the campus? Is it the mission? Is it the type of student that you serve? Is it the faculty, the alumni, the academic programs, right? Kind of all of these questions of what's your highest priority? What do you want to retain after the merger and or partner through the partnership? And then what ends up being kind of, you know, your top uh, priority, your middle nice to have, or middle would, you know, kind of maybe they'd be great to have one of those. And then what's not really something you're going to put into the mix when you're negotiating and bargaining. And I think the most surprising thing for many of the people at Wheelock is that the board put the um, campus um, in that third bucket. It was not the campus location and facilities. They were not. They were the le one of the least um, important elements, and the mission to serve children and families and honor the legacy of Lucy Wheelock was really one of the top priorities. And I think that it's very tough to be mission focused in our current climate. I will say one of the most interesting changes from uh, moving from higher ed to city hall, this is the first time in over 30 years that I am not looking at revenue and bottom line as a main <laughs> motivator. It, it's really different. These are difficult days for higher education. Even before the pandemic, higher education was in a freefall. Colleges are closing or merging at an ever-increasing rate. Leaders are facing challenges from every direction. No wonder so many experts are calling for a new kind of leadership. 
The Bay Path University Doctorate in Higher Education Leadership and Organizational Studies, affectionately known as HELOS, was created for just this time and purpose. We asked seasoned leaders for their input, and then we designed the courses in response. The HELOS program prepares students to become highly effective, self-aware, adaptive leaders who know exactly how to leverage their institution's strengths and potential to create lasting change and enduring success. All coursework is online. Students receive an abundance of personalized support, both from their peers and from our expert faculty. We are now accepting applications for our October start. If you want to become a catalyst for change in higher education and have an impact, take the next step. Visit our website at baypath.edu edd. That's baypath.edu edd. Mary, I'm really struck by what you shared about how the Wheelock College Board went about its decision-making process. And I'm thinking specifically about the fact that they prioritized with mission first and foremost. Is that a little bit unusual in your experience in terms of uh, how boards and senior leaders are thinking, particularly uh, when leading in the midst of crisis or transition? It was great that the Wheelock board put the mission first. Yes, because I've seen so many institutions change their mission to chase the dollar or the enrollment. Right. And, um, you know, not everyone was thrilled with the BU merger and felt that we should have uh, kept the institution open no matter what. Mm. And I have said, I think we really need we are nonprofits we really need to walk that back and say why are we here and when you right. change too much are you are you changing to chase the dollar or are you changing because you want to stay true to your mission and you can find right. another way to meet that mission and and i think that it is when you're when your founder focused on training kindergarten teachers I mean, that is really, it's, that's an important mission to protect. And, um, but it's hard to pay the bills when that's your focus. Right. But when you have a, an institution that is financially as strong as BU and is willing to give you that space to protect your mission, I think that's really important. So, Well, and in your book, I think this is what you were talking about when you wrote that mergers in higher education have been framed predominantly as failures rather than as ways to save an institution's mission and honor its legacy. Yeah. So is that, is that? That's exactly what, it. That's yeah. exactly it. Yeah. Which is a very, um, that was another, there were several places in the book where it, I, I stopped and I had to really think through um, what, what you were saying, because it was, um, it's a, this, like, like many places in the book, uh, you you provide some really helpful but um, out of the box ways for leaders to be thinking about the role of their institutions today. And I do think typically people do think of a merger as a failure. Yeah. Um, and and to me, it begs the question: What are we saving when we're saving the institution? Right. 
and it, and it's interesting because it's you know i'm i mentioned i'm a sociologist right so and and we are in a capitalist society <laughs> but i do think some of our most um progressive folks on campus will fight to save the institution at any cost and i don't think they understand the economic model under which we're working and what that means so right. yeah yeah so can you talk a little bit more about the process, the actual process of finding the right potential partner? You talked about you had a few um, possibilities, but that BU, um, there are several reasons why BU, be, BU became the right, the right partner. So what kinds of questions did you ask? And are there some red flags that became obvious or that that people should be on the lookout for if they are at this stage uh, in exploring a merger? So I'll, I'll do an expedited timeline uh, because this is like several chapters of the book. Um, so in June, we sent out um, like a letter of inquiry to 61 college presidents across the United States, just saying, we're pursuing a partnership. We didn't say merger, closure, nothing like that. It was very open one page letter from the president just saying, you know, and if you're interested in having that conversation with us, you know, let us know, send us a letter of interest by a certain date, right? And so we received, I can't, I, maybe like 13 letters um, were people who were interested in having that conversation. The president also received calls from other institutions saying we're not interested, but wow, that's a really interesting way to approach a partnership is, uh, and you know, here are some words of advice or here's, you know, I'd love to hear more about what you're thinking, just curiosity. So, th so that was kind of fun. <laughs> so, and then, um, so we started having conversations uh, with those other institutions that were interested. We brought folks to campus, gave them campus tours, sat down, had more intimate conversations, and then um, gave them the opportunity to submit a, a formal proposal, a vision proposal of how they would address all kinds of different things. You know, How would they retain the mission? How would they honor Lucy's legacy? How would they, um, you know, what opportunities would be there for our students, for the teach out and supportive students? Um, would our students have full access to their campus facilities as well as their academic programs? Um, what, uh, how would they deal with the transition of our faculty, our staff, our alumni? Um, what would they do with the campus? Like basically everything, right? Kind of this full thing. And so they, submitted really robust, we got six really robust proposals that ranged the gamut. I mean, they, they you know, from BU was the most uh, generous taking care of the most people long-term with a real concrete way, vision for how that would happen. I think other institutions said some things like, um, we'll just figure it out. <laughs> and that was not reassuring to the board like we'll do that in partnership and collaboration while that sounds great, but I think when you are thinking of the the future of um, the legacy and mission of your institution. You want a little more security in knowing that there's a plan right and so, so the plan was not very concrete from a couple institutions and for others, the plan eliminated 
all of the faculty, staff, and alumni and students basically taught the students out and then would have endowed chairs and um, a named building and really honor, honoring the legacy in a very different way than what the board was interested in. And then other uh, institutions just didn't have the financial resources to retain um, employees uh, to teach out the students and to take on our alumni. And so their proposals were a, a little more modest than BU's. Um, and ultimately it was kind of going with that. I would say red flags, red flags, vague proposal, right? Like not concrete enough. And really, I think the board said at that point, how will we know that this institution, a couple of these institutions might not be in the same place we like is right now. So the last thing we want to do is go through with this, close the institution, and then have that next institution close 10 years from now. So right. that was definitely a piece of it. Another red flag was, um, and we talk about this in the book, we narrowed it down to two institutions, uh, BU and one other. And the other one, they were not, uh, the president was not as um, open to negotiating and having conversation and going through the process that we had outlined with our board um, as the president of BU was. And so I think that um, they they kind of gave us a demand. They, they demanded to be the only institution in the negotiation process at that point. And, and we said our board does not support that. So they pulled out. And then, and then, you know, kind of at that point, we were pretty far along already with BU and BU continued to negotiate with us. Even then, even when they were the only ones kind of left standing that that we wanted to negotiate with. So, so yeah. I would say the ability to, um, to continue in dialogue, right. And that was a red flag, they did not want to continue in dialogue. And they did not want to honor our process. They wanted to control the process and I think for us we're like well what's this going to be like on the other side if they want to control right. things now when we're in the negotiation phase so yeah that's very 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 uh very helpful so once the merger is underway there are any number of things as you write about um that need to be integrated and worked through not to mention the caretaking uh, of all of your various constituents and uh, you have talked so eloquently about that, the, the, what you learned about the need to hold space at your round table um, for people to, to vent and express their, their pain and their, their sorrow. So any other lessons that you could share in this regard? And again, I know you write a lot about this in the book, but are there some key, uh, key takeaways in terms of how you thought about or went about the integration process? I think communication is key. Um, holding lots of different types of uh, ways to communicate, email, open forum, uh, phone calls, um, all college meetings, small meetings, one-on-one -on -one meetings, you know, kind of really, you cannot uh, over-communicate within a period like this. So that that is um, key. But I think one thing you just reminded me of when you asked this question was, um, this is a, it's a, this period of transition, each individual goes through it differently and at a different pace. Someone said to me, um, 
six months after I'd had one of those roundtable conversations with with two people who who ended up transitioning into BU. And I had said, you know, it's going to be different. It's not, you know, trying to kind of manage their expectations. It's maybe it's nine months later. She said to me as a faculty member, she said, you told us this nine months ago, but we weren't ready to hear what you were saying. And it was such a profound moment because everybody's is at a different point of when they're ready to hear kind of the next steps and so some people made this transition very early and some of those roundtable conversations were can you look at my cv and help me get on the market and apply for another job i haven't done this in years you know and so i i everybody was at a different stage and so meeting them where they were and listening and trying to figure out what you could offer in that time and space what became very very important so and do you know if um did that did that process continue after uh the merger and after uh people were transitioned to BU because I would imagine to your point uh if uh if some of this is uh not emerging until you're actually in the new institution I and I perhaps you may not know, but I'm just curious if there was a plan on the BU side to help uh, with the transition as well. The conversations continue to this day, yes, and we uh, merged with another unit at Boston University, the School of Education. Mm -hmm. So they they had their own closure and merger to go through. Um, BU has 17 schools and colleges. It's large, one of the largest institutions in New England, right? Given any given year, it's that or UMass Amherst, right? Yes. Um, and so they had to go through their own process. And we had, I don't, we don't really use this terminology anymore, but for a while we had legacy Wheelock, legacy School of Ed, and what we called the new new. So like, you know, three different <laughs> groups of of people that with different concerns and different histories sure. and um we've had we had a really amazing associate dean of faculty affairs whose background is in uh, counseling psychology as mm -hmm. a as her academic area which i think has been really helpful <laughs> and she has had to hold space for a lot of those individual conversations of mm -hmm. um you know for faculty they they merged into units together into program areas together and you know how you taught intro to whatever you know you have different philosophies of how you teach your course and right. so getting people to let go of their course and share course and all of that that had to work itself out in the first couple of years um and it was challenging at the individual faculty level very challenging and and i felt i think faculty felt um, personally attacked, right? You know, we don't talk about that in the book because it was kind of like after the book ended, but there, you know, so much of an academic identity is in the courses you design and the programs you teach. And so it's, it's hard to separate yourself from that. And so when someone says, I don't teach that class that way, I teach it this way, why do you teach it that way? It feels sure. very personal, I think, so, yeah. Well, and in your book, you do describe the tensions that you uh, encountered uh, at Wheelock uh, 
as it relates to the shared governance model. And I wanted to ask you about that because across this country right now, as you know, there are many institutions that are mired down in their efforts to make necessary changes for precisely the, the same reasons. And I think uh, it seems like just about every other week or every week in Inside Higher Ed and other places where we are reading the news, we read about a college or a university administration that is at loggerheads with its faculty, uh, typically resulting from the leadership's desire or attempts to move the institution in a new or a different direction. So you have been on both sides. You've been a faculty member. You've been uh, an administrator and an academic administrator specifically. Do you have any guidance for these leaders who are trying to bring their faculty along uh, with them, uh, knowing that they can't, they can't stop the change? So they have to keep going, they and their boards, um, but yet is there a way to do it and to keep your faculty moving with you? I think transparency from the administration side is incredibly important. So letting them know about the financial situation and what's happening as early on as possible and any potential moves, bringing them into decision-making, not about the finances, but about the details as much as possible. And so um, we kind of let the faculty battle it out of what those programs would look like, what those courses would look like. You know, we had obviously financial parameters and what we needed to do, but we did not micromanage how that was done academically. Um, and I, I think that I think institutions need to be honest, right? So if you're cutting a program because you're you, because you want to cut faculty. And so if you start from looking at the bottom line and saying, where can we save money and where can we cut faculty and which program can we cut? I think that's a disingenuous start. And so if you're looking at enrollments and you're saying this program hasn't had students in a long time, and I've done this at other institutions, is there a way that you can take the faculty associated with that program and put them into other programs, right? And, and save the faculty and stop the program. So you're not hiring new faculty in a program, you know, kind of through attrition, you will lose faculty and you won't replace them. But you're, if your first impulse is to cut faculty and then you're trying to find a place to do that, I think, I think it rings through versus if you're actually just forecasting into the future of where can we have savings in the future if we eliminate a program that's been underperforming financially. Mm. And, and there's a, there are two different ways of like very different ways of doing that. And, and I think people see what you're doing when you're not honest. And so I think that that's one thing I've seen different institutions do that differently, but that actually gets back to what I think we liked it was very, very good at doing and had started doing um, well before David and I arrived, which is financial forecasting several years into the future. And mm -hmm. so that kind of move of if I close this program now, what will our savings be five years from now can only be made when you're in a financial situation where you can actually do that long term planning. Well, Mary, we've come to the end of our time. We have one signature question I have to ask you. 
Okay. I'm very curious. I'm very curious what your response will be given your, your perspective. But this is a question we ask of every guest who comes on the, the podcast. So here it goes. As, as you look to the future, what do you see that we all need to be paying attention to right now in higher education? Or in other words, in your opinion, what needs to be front and center for all of those who are leading institutions? I think that it is really questioning what's the value we bring to society. Mm -hmm. And I think that this work I'm doing right now in the city of Boston is tied to kind of that North Star, that compass of mine of the institution doesn't stand alone. The, you know, the university is, is not there as an echo chamber. If you are not making a difference in the world, what are you doing if you're not uh, changing people's lives and sending them out into the world to make a difference in the world what are you doing so i think that the you know we focus on um being financially viable has taken over so much of what we do in higher ed and it, it's the kind of dry driving our engine and i think we really need to come back to what purpose do we serve in society and and have we lost track of that and have other um, entities come in and replaced us in that space while we've been trying to save our institutions at all costs and so i think that really returning to the and i think the capital siege has reminded all of higher ed are we doing our jobs like are we doing what we're supposed to be doing? What value do we bring in this world? And um, so to me, that, that's the, that is a point of crisis right now for higher ed. Melissa Morse-Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You. My thanks to our production assistants, Madeline Olson, Marcy Moore, and Sequoia Cox. Ingenious You is a production of CHELUP, the Center for Higher Ed Leadership and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. Check out our website at baypath.edu slash for information about our professional development programs for higher ed professionals, including our blog and our Leading Edge Thinking in Higher Education monthly webinar series. In our next full-length episode, I'm joined by Lynn Pascarella, who since 2016 has served as the president of the Association of American Colleges and Universities. As a philosopher whose career has combined teaching and scholarship with local and global engagement, Lynn has continuously demonstrated a deep and abiding commitment to ensuring that all students have access to excellence in liberal education, regardless of their socioeconomic background. In our conversation, Lynn shares how her experience as a first-gen college student, then faculty member, provost, and eventually college president has shaped her worldview and her thinking about higher education and the challenges and opportunities ahead for all of us. That's all for now. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy and be well.